Welcome to Faith Church Podcast, where we are a safe place to find and follow Jesus. We're so glad you're here, and wherever you're listening from, we believe God will impact your life through today's message. Good morning. It is really great to be in Sandusky, and I say that because God has favored this part of the state. You know, we live on the east side of Cleveland, pastored for uh, 25 and a half years at Calvary Assembly in Willoughby Hills, and uh, recently retired from that, still an executive presbyter, do a few things. But uh, we were Eastsiders. This side of this, uh, Cleveland was sort of off our map until about 10 years ago when we were listening to our dentist. I, he grew up in Huron, and our, he told us about a day he experienced one spring when the birds just seemed to fall. Well, they call it a fall where he identified 57 species of migrating birds in one day. And and, and that was one of the things that kind of caught her. My my wife has always been interested. My wife, Patricia, is here this morning. Hello, sweetheart. (laughs) But anyway, about 10 years ago, she became serious about birding, and the western side of Cleveland became a favorite place of ours. So it's good to be in Sandusky. (laughs) And... uh, and you know, there were, there were, so there were sights to see out here. I mean, I, I tag along with the camera and you know, God has given us incredible feathered works of art to capture the eye and I get to see that. There are other sights that have captured us in Cleveland. We were both from New York City, uh, New York City area. So Ohio was also off our map before we came here. Um, but once, once being here, there's been one site that has actually kind of captured me and that's this the unflagging devotion of Browns fans. (laughs) I mean, which I count myself among now, but but I mean, Browns have had way, Browns fans have had way more disappointments than victories, right? I mean, way more laps around the mountain than steps into the, you know, onto the throne. I mean, it's been a long and hard journey for most of us, as for, for those of us, well, some of you are much more fervent Browns fans than I am, and you have a longer history, so. But I am amazed, and, and I've always asked myself, what keeps them going? Well, I mean, you know, they, they come in any kind of weather, they cheer no matter what, they wear crazy costumes, and they're fervent. It's hope, <laughs> and that's what keeps them going. <laughs> I mean, hope that, you know, there'll be another 1964. Hope that there will be, you know, finally a trip to the Super Bowl. And, and it's hope that energizes them. Hope that the best is still ahead, right? And so, you know, hope is incredibly powerful as a motivating force in our lives. And uh, it's incredible how it inspires. It can inspire endurance. It can inspire resilience. It can even sustain you when life seems like it's ebbing away. Uh, Take, for example, a woman I know about. um, Her husband had just cruelly betrayed her. Uh, I mean, he was sleeping around with many women. He uh, ultimately spent their savings on gambling, and he eventually abandoned her to raise their children, uh, leaving her with no resources. So she took a job cleaning, to feed herself and her kids. And one day, as she was cleaning, as she actually was on the floor, scrubbing a tile floor in a bathroom, the weight of her loneliness and her despair 
and the grief of a life lost. And just all the weight of her struggles seemed to fall on her and, and threatened to crush her. And as she knelt on that floor with damp knees, a, you know, a, a brush in her hand, and rather than collapse on the floor in despair, she said, or, or suddenly, she was filled with strength and life. And, and here's what she said. She said, I started to sing. I couldn't help myself because suddenly I knew with complete certainty that no matter what happened in the course of my life on earth, everything would be all right. I didn't mention she was a Christian woman. And what was happening was that she was finally being, she was being filled with living hope. She realized that because Christ was in her life and because Jesus had undone all the fallenness of the world, that no matter what struggles she might face from that point forward, everything was in Jesus' hands and all would work out. All would be well. Hope lifted her up. Hope gave her back her life. I would like everybody in this room, I'd like everybody, but certainly everybody in this room, to be filled with hope, to overflow with hope, the kind of hope that energizes, the kind of hope that, that enables you to face whatever challenges are before you, the kind of hope that gives you a spring in your step and, and a light in your eyes. And, and that's why we're going to think about hope today. Um, in fact, I want you to know that Hope is not tangential. Well, Paul says, you know, now three things are important, faith, hope, and love. So it's important. But I want you to believe today with me that hope is right at the heart of the gospel. And, and, and we'll see that in the passage that's going to be right behind me here um, somewhere. There it is. Uh, I have become the church's servant, Paul says in Colossians, by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Right? Now, you hear what Paul said. He said, you know, my job, my, my, God has assigned me the job of communicating the full weight and meaning of his message for the whole world. I, I mean, my job is to make it clear and pungent and powerful. And, and he says, and I'm going to boil it down for you in this little phrase. The gospel can be summarized in these words, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, the good news is, you know, you know it, that when you receive Jesus Christ, you put your faith in him, you turn your heart over to him, that he steps in, he, he, he moves in. He takes residence in, in our lives. And, of course, Jesus himself hinted at that or pointed to that uh, when he was talking with his disciples. And he said to them that, you know, the Holy Spirit will come to you, he will be with you, and he will be in you. And in fact, he says, and I myself will be in you. So that's, we know, that's Christianity 101. Christ lives in the heart of believers. And so what I want us to do is to just grab a hold of the fact that because Christ is in our hearts, we have a glorious hope. 
Because Christ has taken residence and our future, our destiny is all is determined by his accomplishments, by what he's done. We've got a glorious hope. We've got a hope, in fact, that can withstand every challenge and, in fact, will, will carry us forward through all of life. And, uh, and thank God for that. Amen? Amen. Amen. So we're going to take a close look at Christian hope. We're going to see three things. Number one, we're going to see the nature of this hope. And, 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 and we're, and we're going to see, you know, why we need this hope and then how we can get it, okay? So the nature of this hope, why we need it, and how we can get it. And we're going to see that by looking at the book of Revelation, which is, um, if you see it as it ought to be, a very hopeful book. So Revelation 21, it's a long passage, lots of slides, I'm guessing, but read it with me uh, or, or listen as I read it, okay? And, and listen closely. Here, here we go. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down. These words are trustworthy and true. Amen, they are. Those are great words. I probably don't have to, I probably don't have to preach. I've just given you all you need. I mean, that's really, really wonderful. You know, uh, the New Testament or the writers of the New Testament refer to Jesus' resurrection as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, the first fruits of those who have died. And you know, the first fruits are, right? They were the first crops that would be harvested and, and, and they were important because they said, well, the, the, the harvest is coming and, and we're sure that the full harvest is going to arrive. We've seen the first fruits. We can be confident that the rest will come. But we have to ask the question, wait, what is Jesus' resurrection then the first fruits of? Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits of what? The first fruits of what we just read. Because the resurrection of Jesus initiates the restoration of the world. It, it initiates a, a circumstance that's described here, right? And, uh, and, and, and so we've got a lot to look forward to, don't we? Amen? <laughs> so we're going to see the nature of Christian hope in this passage. Let's take a look at it. Um, what God's talking about here in Revelation 21 is that he's putting an order, he's putting a new order of things in place. He's, he's renovating creation, right? The whole creation is being restored. It's gonna look like what he originally intended it to look like. And for many years, I overlooked an obvious fact in what we just read. And, and when, when Paul talks about, you know, he had many times when he was threatened with execution and looking forward to his death, he says, you know, I prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And, and, and so he, he imagines that time when he will leave his body behind, he'll go into the Lord's presence. And I always made the mistake of assuming, well, that's going to be the shape of my destiny. 
That is, I'm going to leave this body, I'm going to be with the Lord, and I'm going to live in kind of a spirit existence. And, of course, the good news is that according to Revelation 21, it doesn't end there. I mean, that's good. Uh, Better to be absent from the body and present with the Lord, Paul also says. But that's not the best, and it's not the end of things. It's not our destiny, right? In fact, what we read here is that Paul or John is given a revelation of a new heaven and a new earth. In fact, the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven, down to our realm, the new earth, okay? So God's promising something much more substantial than being a ghost floating from cloud to cloud, as you might have imagined. I mean, that's a crude imagination that sometimes we have. What's heaven like? Well, kind of floating around, but no, it is a new, a, 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 a corporeal existence on the new heaven and the new earth. Amen? Merged, heaven and earth, merged. And the new earth has some real earthy features, right? So what do we see when we, at the end of history? We're, we've just read the end of history here. We don't see individuals sort of rising, lifting off the earth and floating up to heaven and living then in some sort of ethereal, translucent form. We see instead heaven coming down to earth, transforming it, and implied here is people equipped, fitted for living on the new earth through a resurrection of their bodies. So got a real different feel to me than imagine floating around as a kind of spirit. Now, the good news is that the Bible promises this, that the saints will not only live forever, but they will live forever in resurrected bodies. Paul talks about Jesus who has the power to transform our lowly bodies into bodies like his glorious body. So, I mean, you remember what it was like, his glorious body, remember? I mean, it was a body. He ate fish. He let the disciples touch him, touch his hands, touch his side. But he also passed through locked doors without opening them. That's a little bit different. (laughs) But it was a body, a glorious body. And Paul straightforwardly says, we will have that kind of body. Well, that, that, that that improves my hope in heaven, to be honest with you. Um, I'm kind of used to being in a body. I like being in a body. And good news, by the grace of God and the gift of God, I and you, every believer in this room, will one day inherit a resurrection body. That's good news. Amen? (laughs) So God's not redeeming just your spirit. He's redeeming your body. And what we see in Revelation 21 is a redeemed material world. You see, we're not going to float around and communicate by telepathy. We're going to dance. We're going to sing. We're going to eat. We're going to hug. It's going to be a real bodily existence, not just some sort of sweet by and by where we float around, okay? Now, what we've seen here is the redeemed material world finally taking the shape that God originally intended and the shape which we have always longed for it to take. Now, you may not be aware of those longings all the time, but I know you've had deep moments of satisfaction in life on this earth. I mean, maybe it's been on some holiday afternoon after, or you know, with your family, around the fireplace, 
after a day of, of, of exchanged love and wonderful food and the rich satisfactions of being together, you may say, oh, this is as good as it gets. This is really good. Or, or, or maybe it's, you know, the, the glimpse of a dazzling sunset. Or maybe it says my daughter and I recently looking over the edge of the Grand Canyon, seeing that, that, that massive miracle stretch out before you, uh, you know, struck with the sunlight at sunset. Those things like this, you look and say, this is wonderful. This is good. Maybe it's when you come home and you see the joy in the eye of your pet dog. <laughs> who's, who's so happy to see you. Life on earth is pretty good, right? I mean, it's not all bad. Doesn't it, in those moments, doesn't earth feel a lot like home? Doesn't it feel a lot like home? Uh, it does to me. Uh, has, I, so I, I like to run. It's, it's my way of, of, of clearing my head. And I was running one day in the metro parks near us, on a beautiful, crisp fall morning, uh, under the canopy of the brightly colored fall trees on a soft, grassy path. And I was just running comfortably and feeling great, fully alive. And I thought to myself, I wish it could be like this every day. Of course, I knew it couldn't. I knew I live in a fallen world. But I sure wanted an earth where those momentary delights were permanent. Where it would just always be good, always be wonderful. Well, here's what I believe. I believe those experiences of wholesome satisfaction provide, leave us longing for things that we will one day experience. That they're a taste, a foretaste of the blessings, the glory of living on a new earth merged with a new heaven. With resurrection bodies. It's coming. So I believe we've got something really wonderful to look at. The nature of our hope, it's bodily, it's, uh, it, it's, it's new, it's, it's refabricated, and it is, according to God's original design, deeply satisfying to the longings we as humans have. It's going to be good. Amen? Well, that's the nature of our hope. Well, why do we need this hope? I mean, sure, well, I guess I've already illustrated, right? But, you know, God said this. We, we read it. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is among people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be with God. God will be with them, and God himself will be their God. These earthly satisfactions are just a foretaste of the repair that will occur at the resurrection, when Jesus returns, when all this happens. And our, the main thing about it, our relationship with God is going to be repaired. You remember, as soon as Adam and Eve ate that uh, forbidden fruit, you know that their relationship with God fell apart. And their relationship with themselves fell apart. I mean, there's suddenly anxiety and, 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 and fear. Uh, they, 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 they didn't relate to themselves comfortably, and their relationship with others fell apart, right? There was shame and nakedness and distance, and their relationship with the material creation fell apart, right? I mean, there was deterioration and disease and death and, and all these things because their relationship with God that was broken, all these other relationships. Well, well, here's the good news. When in the new creation, our relationship with God is healed, 
all those other relationships will be healed as well. Right? We have peace with God. We have peace with ourselves. We have peace with our neighbors. We have peace with the, the material reality that will surround us at that time. That's, that's why we need this hope, right? It's coming, a good thing, something like that. And that's what Peter has in mind when he points forward and he says this. But in keeping with the promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. Now, the home of righteousness doesn't mean the home of lots of moral people, okay? And we think of righteous as sort of negative terms and super righteous, over righteous people. But that means the home where everything has been put right. Everything has been made right according to God's original design, and, and, and we are going to be there. We need Christian hope. Um, I could tell you stories, but I'm going to skip one because I think we're running out of time here. But you know, I, I think we underestimate the amount that our ultimate hope for the future affects the way we live day to day. It really matters. So, I mean, just, just imagine this, okay? Imagine two women were offered exactly the same job. It's a job, not a very good job, assembling widgets. You know, that's it, just all day, assembling widgets. And one of them was offered the modest salary of $30,000 a year. If you do this, you know, 40 hours a week, you'll get $30,000. That's how we'll, we'll pay you for that. That was acceptable. She took the job. Another woman, you know, a separate offer was offered, you do this for a year, you'll get $30 million. Well, that was good. And, of course, you can imagine how differently they felt about their work. I mean, the, the $30,000, and they didn't tell each other. It was secret, right? Uh, $30,000 assembling widgets after a few weeks says, isn't this driving you crazy? I can't keep this up. I quit. I, this is, I, I, I don't want to do this. And the other lady's just there smiling ear to ear, whistling while she works, uh, assembling widgets very happily because she has an entirely different expectation of what's going to happen. That's how we are. We're made like that. Our hope in the future has a lot to do about the way we live today. And uh, let me ask you this. Do you believe that when you die physically that you just sort of rot in the grave? <laughs> that this world is all you have? That one day the sun is going to go out, it's going to die, and along with it, everything's going to die, and you're going to disappear, and everything you've ever done, thought, or, or done or thought will be forgotten. That's a pretty dismal thought. Uh, sadly, that's a prevailing notion in the larger world in which we live. The secular world around us has no higher hope in many cases than that. That is, at very best, we just disappear. But at very worst, you know, everything else disappears as well. That's not a very, that's not much of a hope. Or do you believe what we just read? That one day there will be a merger of heaven and earth, a new heaven and a new earth. And there will be resurrection bodies in which to live in that new heaven and new earth. And if you believe that, it will change the way you live today. Uh, for when my wife was finishing college, I was a carpenter and a carpenter's helper. And I worked for a corporation building condominiums in Poughkeepsie, New York, when we went to college. And um, they built a condominium complex on the, uh, the side of the Hudson River. 
And sadly, overbuilt, went, start, threatened, were threatened with bankruptcy and had to lay everybody off but me. Uh, why? Because my wife and I were living in the only completed uh, unit in this condominium complex, and I became this sort of de facto security guard. But I couldn't just hang around every day. They said, do something. <laughs> so keep yourself busy. And of course, there wasn't a lot to do. I wasn't really a carpenter. I couldn't build you know, the buildings myself. But they had put firewalls out of which splattered concrete on all the floors, so I could do that. I could scrape concrete off the floors in these 75 dwellings, three stories. A lot of floors, a lot of concrete. That was not very appealing in the winter. But here's what kept me going. Hope kept me going. I had this hope, Colossians. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord you're serving. I got to say, God built my character by enabling me to spend weeks on end scraping concrete off floors for no other purpose than the expectation and hope that Jesus would see it and reward it. It mattered what was going to happen in the next life as to how I live today. And God, of course, speaking through John in Revelation 21, is offering hope to the Christians in the first century. I mean, why does he say there will be no more death, no mourning, no crying, no pain? Because the emperor Domitian had recently begun the most intense persecutions that occurred on Christians in the first century, and many things were in danger. They were in danger of death. There was going to be mourning. There was going to be crying. There was going to be pain. And John was writing these words of encouragement so that they could face the troubles they were going to face. Now, let's be honest, folks. They had more difficulties, more troubles in, in store for them than we will ever face. And John provided them this as hope, and that hope was given to enable them to live and to live fully. And you know what? It worked. You know what? It worked, right? Here we are. Like, we're their, we're their heirs. We're their descendants. But it worked for them, uh, sometimes facing the lions, sometimes facing other persecutions, they lived with, they suffered and served with grace and mercy and forgiveness, so much so that those who observed them wondered, what makes them tick? And what made them tick was the hope they had in Christ. Amen? We need this kind of hope. Gee, I want to tell you something. I'm going to do it real short but uh, before we get to the close, because the last thing is, how do we get this hope? But let me say this. People who have faced far greater challenges have done so with the benefit of this hope. For instance, the African-American slaves that populated the American South in the 17th, 18th, and 19th century, or up to the 19th century, well, yeah, up to the 19th century. Um, Howard Thurman, a great African-American scholar, in 1947 gave a series of lectures at Harvard on the African-American spirituals, the, uh, the topic was the meaning of the African-American spirituals. And one criticism that was typically um, leveled at that level in those, those circles against the African-Americans for singing the songs they sang was that, um, 
you know, they were, they were sort of relying too much on this fantasy, this by-and-by fantasy, that they were filled with references to heaven and judgment day and streets of gold and robes and all that sort of stuff, all the stuff you find, hey, in the book of Revelation, right? And they were criticized because they were too heavenly-minded. Well, here was his response to that criticism. In his lecture, he said, the facts have made it clear that this faith, this sung faith, served to deepen the capacity of slaves for endurance and their ability to absorb their suffering. And it taught people how to ride high in life, how to look squarely in the face of those facts that, that argue most dramatically against all hope and to use those facts out of which they fashioned a hope that their environment with all its cruelty could not crush. This enabled them to reject annihilation and to affirm a terrible right to live. You see, those slaves had a wisdom. They knew that they were singing stuff that was, that was, in their view, real, and we know to be real. And as a result of what they sang and said to one another, they were able to face the worst of the sufferings that humans have suffered. They knew eventually their longings for freedom, for life, for love, for freedom from death, mourning, crying, and pain would be fulfilled in the new heaven and the new earth. And they sang about it. And they sang, right? Swing low, sweet chariot, coming for to carry me home. <laughs> oh, what a glorious city. Yeah, you know these songs. I hope you've heard them. I threatened to sing them, but I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't put that upon you. <laughs> The reason they, they endured is because they had a hope fixed outside this world. Precisely what they were criticized was what enabled them to succeed. They had a hope outside this world, and nothing in this world could steal it or destroy it. And they triumphed in many cases by singing, when the saints go marching in. Amen? <laughs> so how do you get this kind of hope? I mean, honestly, it's very simple. Remember the promises of Jesus. How do you get this hope? Uh, I mean, Jesus made some wonderful promises, right? He said, uh, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. I'll give you rest. It's kind of a promise for now, but also for forever. But here's maybe his most obvious promise, and that was the promise he made about a home in heaven. Uh, you remember he said it this way, my father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I'm, I, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. <laughs> Jesus gave that promise very specific form to one of the most, the, one of the least deserving people he ever encountered, Right? The thief on the cross, what did he say to him? He said, today you will be with me in paradise. Paradise, paradise. Now, it wasn't just for that man. Jesus was promising what he promises to every believer in him. Today, now, won't, hopefully it won't be today. <laughs> uh, really, but uh, nevertheless, paradise something that we can anticipate. And of course, the conditions that the man had to meet were very simple, right? Admit he's a sinner, 
acknowledge Jesus as the king, ask for help, ask for mercy from God. And he received it that day in paradise. But the real key, so remember Jesus' promises about a home in heaven. <laughs> That's what he promised. I'm going to take you to be with me. He'll be with me in my presence eternally. Not only that, there will be a place specifically prepared for you. You will be known. You will be received. You will be, if you will, housed in God's presence. There's a place for you. But the real key to this hope, the real key is to remember who it is who made these promises. Who made this promise? Just think of it. Another one. He said this, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. Jesus is talking about the fulfillment of the longings that not even every good thing in this life will ever fulfill. It's a fallen world. We'll never be fully satisfied. It won't happen in this life, but in the next life, it will. He who comes to me will never hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst when we are with him face to face. So that longing that we have, the longing for eternal satisfactions, remember that Jesus promised that. And who is he? One last quote. Who is this Jesus? He said this, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. My flesh, I will give it. Who made these promises? The same Jesus who offered up his body to the crucifiers, to the flagellators. The same Jesus who said, um, you know, Father, not my will, but thy will be done, who took then the suffering he endured for our sakes. That, that Jesus made this promise. That Jesus who would suffer the penalty you and I deserved, who would suffer the punishment you and I deserved. That Jesus says, I'm making a home for you in heaven. That Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. You'll never hunger and you'll never thirst. And we can be sure of this, that if that Jesus would suffer as he did for our sake, that he will keep the promises he'd suffered to secure. Amen? He will do that for you. So this morning, we can have hope. We just need to remember who his promises and remember who he is that promised it and dwell on that. Just think about that and let it settle in. Would you stand with me this morning? So maybe you're, you know, you're thinking, well, I'd love that hope. I'd love to be so energized by that kind of hope that you can look to Jesus right now and, and, and say, Lord, will you open the eyes of my heart so I may know the hope that you've offered those you've called? Maybe you just want to ask him right now, Lord, increase my understanding of this hope. Deepen my sense of hope. 
And it's possible that there's someone here who's saying, this all sounds so good, but I don't know if I have a relationship with Jesus. Well, if that's your situation, just call on his name. Dare to believe that the presentation we've, we've heard today about him as the bread of life is true. And that he wants you to taste that bread. You can turn from whatever's occupying now to Christ and receive Christ. And maybe what you want to do is just take some time this morning to let these realities settle in. Let this hope take hold of your heart and mind. So are there going to be folks here ready to pray with you? They want to pray with you. Or you can just come here and pray on your own and let the Spirit of the Lord settle this stuff in your heart. Let it go deep. Amen. Father, we thank you in the name of Jesus. Thank you for joining us today. We hope that God spoke to you through today's message. If you want to know more about Faith Church, text CONNECT to 419-664-4555. Be sure to subscribe and share this podcast with your friends. Thanks for listening, and may you find and follow Jesus in all you do.